What's up, guys? Welcome out to another episode of the podcast. My name is Shane Larson, host of the Game Time Guru. We're getting the month of July started off with a bang with an awesome interview, which as normal on the show, I wanted to do things a lot differently on this show than just every other sports podcast that's out there. So I like to interview sports figures from all over the globe. And my mantra is helping you see sports through a different lens. And today we get to see it through the lens of the old Utah Jazz mascot. And shout out to my cousin, John Elmer, for yet another hookup. He helped me get in contact with Thurl Bailey through a connection that he had in Utah. And uh, today's guest was also a connection through my cousin, John Elmer. So shout out to John over there. But before we get started with this, I want to give a shout out, a massive thank you to the sponsor of today's episode. And that is Summit Legal Consulting. Summit Legal Consulting works with business founders to help them from setup to exit. So in the last five years, they've helped founders complete over $1 billion in acquisitions and exits. And I'd like to give my special Shane Larson slash GTG approval and vouch for the man behind the scenes. I know the guy personally who runs Summit Legal Consulting. I can speak to his character. I can speak to his business ethics, and I can speak to his business IQ. He's not a scumbag. The guy knows what he's doing. So if you guys have more interest in learning more about Summit Legal Consulting and what they can do for you and your business, check it out here in the description, or you can DM me and I can con uh, get you in contact with the owner of Summit Legal Consulting. Special shout out to them for sponsoring this episode. Like I said, guys, you're going to enjoy this episode of the podcast. Great interview, giving you a different perspective on what the NBA was like. Um, especially in the late nineties with the Utah jazz, when they were, you know, making their run towards, you know, the NBA finals and they were playing against the bulls and they had the Stockton Malone era. And you're going to hear it from the mascot. And it's, it's actually very, very interesting. Some awesome stories that he has to share. And I'm excited to share it with you today on the game time guru. So what time is it? Game time. This is the game time guru podcast where I interview sports figures from all over the world to help deliver a panoramic view on sports. So whether you're a former athlete, one of the crazies, or simply a casual sports fan, this is the perfect show for you as we peel back the curtains and learn from our guests every single week. I'm your host, Shane Larson, and I'm helping you see sports through a different lens. Hey, what's up, everybody? Welcome out to another episode of the Game Time Guru Podcast. My name is Shane Larson, host of the show. We're six and a half years running into this uh, podcast, and you know what, guys? I'm I'm super stoked. Every single week is a new opportunity to learn from a different person in the sports world, get a unique perspective on things, and uh, today is no different. Every single week, I get excited. Like I get stoked to do these interviews. People have asked me, like, do you get tired of doing these interviews? It's been six years. No, I absolutely love it. That's what keeps me going. Otherwise, I wouldn't do this anymore. I absolutely love it, and uh, I'm super stoked for this interview today. As you guys heard in the introduction, you've got a really, a really, really special one coming your way, um, and it's cool because it has to do with the culture of the Utah Jazz. And as you guys know, I'm a Jazz fan, a lifelong misery for me. I mean, we've got the finals losses in the late '90s. Jordan pushed off. I mean, it's just we've never won. But you know what? That's part of the journey, and that's what success really is. So I'm excited to be able to bring on a guest that has something to do with the culture of the podcast. And I also want to make sure you guys remember um, that this episode is being brought to you by Summit Legal Council, or sorry, Summit Legal Consulting. And you guys heard about them in the introduction. You'll hear more about my sponsors later on in the episode, but Summit Legal Consulting bringing you this episode today. So joining me is the former Utah Jazz Bear, 
for those who aren't familiar, the mascot, Mr. John Absey. John, thanks for joining the show, brother. How you doing? Nice to see you. Thanks for having me on. And I love Summit Legal Counsel. Those guys are great. <laughs> Let's go. Let's or consulting. Go. Summit Consulting. <laughs> yeah, hey, I didn't say anything. So I'm pitching it for you. <laughs> I love it, brother. Thank you. Thank you for that. Um, big shout out to them. Now, John, it's it's interesting. I got to give a shout out to my cousin as well. John Elmer um, got me in contact with you. John, also, if you guys remember, I, I spoke with Thurl Bailey on the show about two years ago. That was also a referral from John Elmer. I guess you guys over in Utah somewhere, there's like this gym that everybody just goes to. It's like all randomly, like all these connections. It's wild how that all works out. But uh, shout out to my cousin, John, for getting me in the in contact with you. But, you know, John, I want to... I want to rewind the clock a little bit. People are going to be like, wait, you were the mascot? So, like, how does this work? So, I want to go – I want to rewind the clock to when this actually started and what, like, got you interested in the idea of being a team mascot, first and foremost. Were you more into the entertainment industry, the sports industry? Like, what did you – like, what got you interested in wanting to become a team mascot? Um, really, I mean, it, it found me. I wasn't, I was going to school to be an attorney, believe it or not. And then um, when I, I, and I went, I went in the military and I went to Desert Storm. And then when I got back, it all kind of, you know, I was, I was starting school again and um, a CBA team in Fargo, North Dakota came to town and they came to a gym that I was coaching at and it's called the Fargo Moorhead Acro team. They're, they're a national show gymnastics team. And, Basically, I mean, like I said, it found me. It just things just kept happening. They they came into the gym. They asked if anybody there wanted to be a mascot, and everybody was like, "That guy." <laughs> so, and it was it was just fun, and 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 entered. You know, I I did it just because it was side money in college, and you know, I mean, poor college kid, anything helps. And then uh, from there, I uh, I got fired because. Uh, I, they thought I was going to kill myself or I was going to kill a fan because I was doing all the sledding down the stairs and bungee jumping. And, and it was just fun. Like I felt like I was Peter Pan. I was living my, my childhood, everything I wanted to do as a kid I could do. And then a team up in Winnipeg, Manitoba saw they had seen me perform, saw that I got let go and then said, Hey, we'll take you, you know, because uh, you're exactly what we're looking for. So I went up to Winnipeg, worked there for the summer damn near killed myself three times because there were no rules. <laughs> so, and then from there, you know, I, the season ended, I went back down. I was continuing my school in the fall and then a team up in Sioux Falls, South Dakota called. And they said, we'd love to have you come out and do tryouts. Uh, went out there. I had a, a tryout tape. I put it in and I'll never forget. Tom Walsh just stood up that he was one of the owners and he closed the door and he goes, we're going to hire you right now. So, I moved out to Sioux Falls, South Dakota. I worked for the Sioux Falls Sky Force for a year. And then that's when I sent out a tape to uh, all the NBA teams. I got a call from a, a lovely gentleman named Grant Harrison. And uh, he was the vice president of game operations. Said that there was going to be a three-team tryout. And it was between Sacramento, Seattle, and Utah. And um, th that's where it happened. And then, I came out here for tryouts. I left thinking there's no way I got it. I got a call for a second tryout. They flew me in, did the second tryout. Once again, was like, there's no way I got it because I was going against, his name was Greg Holton, and he was icy for the Golden Eagles, and he's amazing. 
and then an Eli Akins, and he could jump out of the gym, like literally could hit the trampoline and grab the top of the backboard. It, it, it was amazing. Wow. And then he ended up later on going to the uh, Harlem Globetrotters. Um, but then they, I got a call from, I went home thinking I never got it, got a call from all three teams and I never called anybody back because I was too afraid. And then, uh, got a call from, uh, Grant Harrison again. And he said, did you take a job with one of the other teams? And I said, no. And he goes, well, what do you, what do you want to do? What are you doing? And I said, I have no idea. I go, I'm a little afraid to move. So I was a little farm boy from Minnesota. And, uh, uh, he said, why don't you come out here for a year? And I did. And 25 years later. So that was really summing it up. <laughs> yeah, no, that's, that's great. Cause then we can unbox a little bit of that. Like, it sounds like there's some competition in, in regards to being a mascot though. Like, so what started as like a side job for, for college then turned into like a profession, but I didn't realize that there was like, I mean, we got tryouts, we've got legitimate, like there's people who want to do this. I guess my question for you then John would be, since you had this experience going to these tryouts to be a mascot, what is required? Like when they say that on the job application, what is required to be a, a mascot? Like, I mean, obviously you have shown multiple physical requirements that are necessary like your physical capabilities uh i guess the fact that you just have courage for that matter to do some of the things that most people wouldn't do as far as the stunts and then entertainment okay stupidity i'm not saying it i didn't say it i didn't say it um my question is though like i guess what what is required um on the job application to actually really do the job at a high level you know uh um, and that was one of the things that got me into the uh, second tryout was when I came out, they wanted uh, stunts, dancing, a skit, crowd interaction, and tumbling. And I was one of the only guys that did all five. Uh, you know, there, there was like at our tryouts, we had the uh, original Phoenix Gorilla, Bob Wolf, and then the original Charlotte Hornet, Mike Zarillo, and they were our judges. And they had brought one of their friends in because they were both ASU gymnasts, brought one of their friends in and said, he's the guy that you want. But all he did was dunk and tumble. You know, Eli Akins came out and he tumbled and I mean, and dunked. I mean, there, there was just nobody came in and did all five events or five things that they asked for. Um, so that's pretty much what a team looks for. Those five things. Uh, they just had tryouts for the Chicago Bulls. Same thing, you know, Um but there's, believe it or not, there's a lot of, like when they opened up those tryouts, there was a lot of people that applied. That's crazy. Well, here's the other question for you then, John. You talk about tumbling and stuff, military background, serving Desert Storm, all that stuff. Where did you guys, where, where did you learn to tumble and dance and stuff? Was that part of your background prior to like the military and stuff? Nope. So when I got, so I was in college and uh, like, once again, looking for a job and there was a, a coaching job for they call it class side, which is just, you know, kids that aren't really, uh, they're, they're going, you know, they're, they're doing tumbling, but they're not like advanced. You know what I mean? And I applied for it and I lied on my application and said I was a gymnast and they hired me. Uh, I went in and I would just watch what other coaches did. It was, and it was funny. And then in the evenings I would teach myself on their equipment, how to tumble and do back tucks and stuff like that. And then when I got out here, um, I, I went over to Paul Hunt's gymnastics. Um, Paul was, uh, he toured all over the world doing gymnastic routines. And I went over to his gym and, and just 
trained. I taught myself basically. <laughs> that is crazy, dude. Like that's that's pretty cool. Self-taught, huh? Um, were you all always into the sports world when you were growing up or anything? Did you compete in any athletics, John? I mean, I competed, <laughs> but I'm not a sports guy. Like, like, like I never sat down to watch sports because I'd much rather be playing sports. Um, so, I mean, yeah, you know, I, I, you know, I did wrestling and track and football and basketball and, you know, I did all the little town sports that you could do. And, uh, I was just mediocre at everything. I was, I was, you know, an example, I just had a lot of energy, dude. <laughs> it was, and I could run a lot. So like in basketball, they, they do like this, they called it like this box defense and they had four guys. And my whole job was just to run around and chase the, like the, the head guy on any team. And it was, it was kind of funny. So that was, that's all I did. Let's I just, go though. Hey, you had your role. <laughs> you, you were athletic. I dig it. So can you, I guess if we were to unbox this a little bit, could you talk to us about the first time, like your very first live game as a Utah jazz mascot with a bear. Just talk to us about what it's like from start to finish the day of a game for the Utah jazz bear, the mascot. Like what was your first game? Like as far as were, were you nervous at all? Cause you already had some experience, but I wasn't sure like this is big time stuff. Like, did you know it was going to blow up to be as big as it was later? Like, just talk to us about your first game overall. You know, you know, my first game, uh, I literally, so we, we repelled in from up top and I remember James Beatty, who is in charge of uh, the building and stuff, um, went up there and rigged me for the rope and, and all that. And I remember up in the catwalk, I fell asleep before the game. And uh, I literally, uh, he woke me up and I literally just was like, okay, because I was so nervous that I just shut down, which is kind of funny. So went over, hooked in, I repelled in. And I remember I was so overstimmed <laughs> that I was just freaking out on the floor. I was all over the place. I ran into a camera. I remember that. And then, you know, I ran off the floor. They announced me. I remember looking in the paper the next day and it said that the character was in desperate need of Ritalin. So yeah, I had a little bit of energy, but it was, wow. it was so, I mean, to, to come from a little town, a little farm, and to rappel in in front of 20,000 people, and you're at center court looking around at everybody looking at you, it was, it, it's overwhelming. So it, it was cool, though. Very cool. At what point, John, did you know that, like, this was going to be a big deal in Utah? Because, like, literally, it is part of the culture. So at what point did you realize, like, okay, like, I am a mascot, but, like, this is kind of part of our this is kind of part of our, our organization. Like this is, this is just as much part of it as anything else. Like at what point did you realize there was going to be a little bit of pressure on your shoulders? You know, I mean, honestly, it was Grant Harrison had uh, a big hand in this. Like, you know, he, he, he gave me what like his, you know, like what he expected and his big line was like, look, I'm going to give you enough rope, you know, to hang yourself. Just don't hang yourself. And, uh, you know, he, he backed me and everything. Um, so, I mean, it, it, he didn't put pressure on me. You know what I mean? Like they didn't put and say, Hey, you got to be the gorilla and you have to be the Hornet. They, they just said, do what you need to do. And they let me do it. it was, and that's what was, I think what really uh, made the program successful was, 
you know, Grant Harrison helped out a hundred percent, but they, they still kept me arm's distance. They let me do what I needed to do. Cause like he said, he goes, we hired you to be the mascot. So you, you know, this is on you. And I think where you see a lot of other teams fail in their character is when the team has too much involvement. Cause you're talking about guys in suits that have no clue about entertainment, no clue about how to be a mascot yet. They want to put their input and, you know, you know, so that's what I really feel helped the character become what it did uh, was because they allowed me and trusted me with, you know, the my judgment on what the character should be doing. That is a huge business lesson. I would I would encourage anybody who's a businessman or businesswoman to rewind that and listen to what John just said, because I think a lot of executives at companies could take a little bit of a lesson there. You know, put the, the ball in the employee's hands, so to speak, if they're the experts, give them the autonomy to do what they do and uh, let them do it well. And don't, you know, sometimes the owners have the pockets and that's great. They're the ones, that's what they do well. Is they, but they got to be able to delegate those things and have allow the autonomy for, give those people the autonomy to do what they got to do and execute at a high level. I think it's awesome. You, you know, uh, I, go I got one example of that. And I thought this was amazing is uh, his name is Nate Randall. And it was after Grant Harrison left and Nate Randall was one of my managers over game ops. And I just thought it was the coolest thing. Cause he called me in cause I had nine game day bear crew guys. Yeah. And, and he, he was like, so why do we need nine guys? And I was trying to explain it and he, he, he wasn't really getting it. And then I just said, listen, I go, you know, come down, be part of the bear crew and, you know, for one of the games and then, the, you know, you'll, you'll see what I mean. And I, I honestly never expected him. I thought he'd come down, look around, but he came down. I gave him a Bear Crew shirt, put a Bear Crew hat on him, and he was 100% Bear Crew that night. And, you know, so I have this senior VP running around on the floor throwing shirts, you know, uh, hauling out equipment, doing this, doing that for the, for the game that night. And afterwards, he just looked at me and he goes, I get it. And it was that moment that, that you sit there and you're just like, that's what every manager should do is get in the trenches and, you know, get dirty and understand firsthand why, you know, certain things are done in, in departments. That is gold. That will be a snippet that I take here and probably put that on LinkedIn because that's genius. And I think everybody needs to see that, you know, John, I, um, I have a question that I, I was putting together like questions that I wanted to know as a, not only as a podcast host, but as a fan of the sport and a fan of the jazz. I'm curious from your perspective, like the pregame, uh, I guess preparation is the word to put there. Like, because to the general public, I think people will just be like, Oh yeah. Like the bear shows up, the mascot shows up here and there. It's like, no, like if you really think about it, there's timeouts where there's certain skits, there's half times, there's different stunts that are done at different times at different parts of the stadium. I mean, I'm assuming that behind the scenes, there's like a plan that goes into place. So I'm just curious about what the preparation is like for a game day. And is this a full-time job where like every day you're practicing and, and doing these things? How, how do you guys prepare for a game day? And what's it actually like when the, the game starts to finish? Like, are you just go, go, go? You know, it's, it's different for everybody. Um, just like any business, you know, everybody does their business different. Um, and I did mine totally different through, you know, so on a game day, uh, I would get in early 
you know, and I know, I know a lot of other guys would get in later, but I, I'd get in as early as I could and I'd start just prepping because I love the buildup to the event. I love the buildup to the game, you know, <clears throat> slowly seeing employees trickling in, slowly seeing fans trickling in and then the players and, and it was just, it, it was just really cool. Um, you know, and as for like preparation and stuff, I was really fortunate that the jazz allowed me not to really like a lot of other guys are like, okay, they have to have a game plan. This is what I'm doing every game. This is what I'm doing at these timeouts. And I never really did. I mean, a lot of my stuff, believe it or not, was just spontaneous. Um, and I never really practiced that much because in my head, like when it came to stunts and stuff, as I always said, you know, the more I practice, the closer to a, you know, to being an injury, you know, there's always the ones one in a million chance that I could get hurt. So I just said, the cl more I practice, the closer to a million I get. So I, I just remember, you know, the jazz would always be like, well, what are you going to do tonight? And I'd be like, just play some music. <laughs> and I would, I would come up with something and go out and do it because I loved the organic entertainment. I loved going out and just reacting to what was going on. And, and I think a lot of that came from, because it didn't happen that way at the start, but it turned that way a couple years in because I was in Phoenix. I was doing a birthday party with the gorilla and we went out and rehearsed and rehearsed and rehearsed and rehearsed. And it was like, so crazy. Like they were just, this is how it's going to happen. And when we went out that night for the birthday party to do those things that we rehearsed repeatedly a hundred times, they never went off exactly like they have, like we had practiced. And it, and it locked a lot of us up because we're sitting there and you're like, oh, you know, well, something happened. The music didn't work or this didn't happen. And we didn't know what to do because we had rehearsed so much that we, you know, we, we just locked up. I did. And when I came back, I was like, I'm never going to rehearse like that because I want to be able to react to anything that happens and not have to in my head go, you know, I, I'm following a path that diverted <laughs> and get lost and, and stand out there like an idiot. So I remember all the time just showing up and going out there. And, and a lot of my stuff that you see and, and saw if you were at a game was ad lib and spontaneity. That's very interesting. That's really cool. I didn't know that. And um, I'm sure there's people I, I relate to you in a certain degree in regards to like, you know, that I come from sports. So obviously you want to practice for sports and this and that, but like, You've also, there's part of me that for a lot of things, I don't like to think about it until it happens. And I used to tell people this, John, like when I was boxing, I wouldn't, a lot of people do this like visualization and stuff. And I think that's super helpful and whatnot. But like for me, when I was boxing, I would also obviously train, but the day of a match, I literally didn't want to think about it until the, the bell rang because I just didn't want to have to like think about what could go wrong. So I just, just do it while you get in the ring and just go. And some people are completely against that, but it like helped my nerves as well. Like, if I have to give a talk or a public spe speech or something, I don't like to prepare too much because I, I want to be able to just, I have my thoughts all gathered, but the more I prepare, the more I fumble over my words. So I just let it fly when I get there. It's kind of interesting. So I understand you to an extent, obviously not to the extent of yours, but to an extent. Um, so tell us the first year, what was the first year you were the Utah jazz mascot? Like when, when did you start? Holy cow. So I mean, that, you gotta remember that was 30 years ago. So started in 1993 and um honestly that first year was such a blur uh because 
I mean, it was so new. Every game was so exciting and every game was, you know, I was learning like every game, learning something new. And um, sorry about that. So you said 1993 was the first year that you started as a mascot for the Utah Jazz. And you mentioned the first year was sort of a blur, but you were learning and learning and learning. Um, I guess my question to follow up on that, John, would be, that was kind of during the heyday of the Utah Jazz. For anybody who's been a lifelong Jazz fan or just now a current Jazz fan, they might, they've heard about the early 90s, like the, the 90s run. You got the Stockton Malone era and all this stuff. So the, the buildup for the Utah Jazz was like huge during that time. Now, I'm curious, did you even focus on what was going on with the actual team or were you just so focused on your job as a, as a mascot that you didn't even really realize what was going on? Because that was some big time leverage as they started to take their their rise up as an organization you know honestly and god see this is where it's so bad like half the time i didn't even know if we had a road game a lot of times i would get done and i would be like who won because i didn't i was so focused on getting out there you know working the crowd and doing stuff like that um that i i didn't really focus a lot on the game you know and i didn't really keep up with it because um i learned early on you know, that, uh, and, 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 you know, I, I got to thank Jerry Sloan because they, he allowed me, like I had so many privileges that nobody else had, like being able to go into the locker room and get therapy, sitting right next to a player, you know, before the game, sitting in the ice baths afterwards, going in at halftime and getting therapy. I mean, and Jerry Sloan allowed that. So I, I really, and getting to know him like that on that level, I, 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 I wasn't a fan. I mean, like I loved him, but I, I mean, and I liked him as players and people, but they were just people to me. Does that make sense? Yeah. I wasn't a fan and you get a lot of people. And I, there was a lot of managers in our arena that were fans, you know, and they just like, I'm sure like in our day, we called them jock sniffers. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. It was like, I just wasn't, you know? And so in that sense, like when I go in the locker room or I'd see him, like, I still, I don't have any autographs from anybody and I don't really have any jazz paraphernalia, you know what I mean? Just the awards, but otherwise I never really collected anything, you know? And if I did get an autograph, it was for a kid in the crowd or something like that. And, and I really respected what, you know, Jerry gave me because if I walked in the locker room and was asking for autographs, you know, I would have broke that trust in a sense, you know what I mean? So I, I, I mean, yeah, that first year, you know, had a lot of learning or a lot of learning curves to it. And that was definitely one of them was I learned that they're, they're, they're people just like us. John Stockton said it all the time. And um, he always was just like, dude, I'm just doing my job. And he looked at it as a job, just like, you know, you get up and go to your job and I go to my job. He didn't think of it and think of himself as like this celebrity, um, you know, because I remember him walking out of the locker room and if you come out of the locker room and you take a left, you, you go down this hallway and there's press and fans and all this other stuff. And he would look and then he would scurry across the hall and walk underneath the bleachers to get out so that he didn't have to, you know, get hounded by press and stuff. But no, that was probably, you know, one of the bigger things. I don't even know if I answered your question. <laughs> well, you kind of did. Like was, yeah, you did. Cause it was more so just, you didn't really get caught up in the excitement of the organization in the sense of the success of the, of the jazz as a, as a basketball program, but you just kind of did your job. Uh, and it reminds me of Nikola Jokic, who just 
uh, recently won the NBA finals and just everyone's kind of hating on that guy. They're hating on him. When I, sh- I say you should be respecting the guy. He just like, he said that in his press conference. He's like, I, I mean, I just want to go home man. I just do my job. Anybody, anybody, you, you know, if people say they love their nine to five, they're lying. Like, they, I mean, he just does his job at a very high level and goes home. Like, I love that. It kind of sounds like you guys were the Nikola Jokic before Jokic existed. So, oh man, it's just like, do your job and go home. Um, that's cool though. That's cool. But I, I want to ask you about the finals, you know, in the late nineties, jazz were making their finals runs. Uh, obviously the, the, the Chicago bulls matched up with them. There's documentaries on this now and all this stuff. Um, so I'm sure at least you understood the magnitude of what was going on at the time. Um, whether you were like a huge fan or not at the time, it's just, you understood the magnitude of it. Can you explain what the atmosphere was like inside the Delta center at the time, um, during those, those finals runs and the playoff runs and just, what, it, was it any different than like the regular season from a mascot's perspective? Wow. You know, I always tell people, I'm like, I wish I could just touch you so you could experience the behind the curtain, you know, like in Wizard of Oz, you know, just <laughs> <clears throat> it was amazing. Um, gee, I don't even know where to start. I mean, because, you know, I always thought in basketball, you know, you, you you're, you're playing. And then I know that you can go up to another level for the first round and stuff. The thing that was amazing to me was watching every round, like the players went to another level, you know what I mean? In their performance, their focus, uh, their drive, you know, and I know a lot of that had to do with Jerry because Jerry, you know, he could pull that out of players. Um, yeah, I just got the goosebumps thinking about all this, but I just, I mean, it, it was like a whole different world. Like when, when you get to the finals, I just remember um, little things. Like I remember one time stock had just hit a three and it, and it put us up and there were just a couple minutes left and there was a timeout. And I remember my assistant, Luke Larson, we're this far away and he's yelling at me and the crowd was so loud that I couldn't hear him. I saw his lips moving and I just started laughing in suit. And I'm like, I can't hear. I couldn't hear a word because the crowd was so loud. And the cool thing about then um, was the fact that those were real fans. You know what I mean? Like back in the nineties, when you were a jazz fan, you were a jazz fan and you'd been a jazz fan since the ABA days, you know, back when they were the stars and, and, you know, they, they sat in the lower bowl and they wore jazz paraphernalia and they were there to be jazz fans. And they weren't just given a ticket like today because some corporation bought 100 seats or, you know, you're sitting lower bowl and you just want people to see. You. I mean, it's just I just feel like it's really different today when it comes to fan compared to what the 90s fans were. Um, but then again, I think that has a lot to do with the league. I'm totally diverting off what your question is, but I'll get back to that. But, I mean, I think that when back in the 90s, you know, players and fans interacted. And I really feel in today's world that they've the, the league has shoved players and fans so far apart. I remember Greg Foster, uh, Steve and Minnie were this uh, older couple that uh, used to come down and always bring me a Mountain Dew and, and cookies. And uh, Greg, they had asked Greg Foster to come over for dinner, and he went. And I was just, it was like, it was that kind of an atmosphere. It was a family atmosphere. The, the players appreciated the fans and now it's, it's totally different. And now I'll get back to your question. I'm sorry, but I think, I think, uh, you know, during the finals, 
um, you know, the, the, the NBA comes in and runs things, but I just remember being busy from early morning till evening, every day, all the time doing TV remotes going out. And, you know, even when they were on the road playing, you know, in Chicago, you know, we were doing in arena events and, you know, coming up with all these new video ideas and it was just so much fun and everybody was so excited. You know, we were the small team, small market team that wasn't supposed to get anywhere. And here we are in the finals. Uh, and just the electricity that was in the city was was amazing. The, the only thing that I hated, um, and I always tell guys this, that uh, uh, that I, I'll call them when they're before they're going in the finals. And I'm like, dude, soak it up. Enjoy every second of it. I said, but if you don't win, be ready for a, 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 a letdown because... I remember going through like both times we were in the finals going through like a weird, almost depression. You know what I mean? Because when it's over and you didn't win, it's just over. You wake up the next day. There's no fanfare. There's no parades. There's no more videos. There's no more TV. You're just done. And all of that adrenaline, all of that excitement, all of that work just comes to a stop. And it, it's hard, like literally hard to, to shut off. And I remember it took me like a week of just sitting home, you know, going into the arena, sitting in my barricades, just going, now what? You know, it was, it was really weird, but probably one of the most amazing experiences ever. That's so cool though. That's the kind of stuff I wanted to hear though, the behind the scenes. And yeah, I would never have thought of that, but it totally makes sense. What you just said, like the, the post finals letdown is a good way to put it and i that's and it extends to every part of the staff because you're part of that whole entire experience from beginning to end and if you don't win it i mean shoot as a fan i was in fifth grade john i still hate michael jordan to this day i'm not a michael jordan guy i'm not one of those guys i refuse i did a college presentation on how he pushed off and it was one of the biggest no calls in sports history I still hate the Bulls. So, like, I was depressed for, like, a whole summer. I cried the entire time. It pissed me off. So, you know, I can't I even imagine working. No, that? no, I agree. I was going to say about you and Jordan, I think, you know, and, and I know nobody wants to say this, but I fully blame the refs. I, I mean, I really do. I, I, I really – and I don't care what anybody says, and I don't care. I'm not in the NBA anymore. The NBA sways these games. I don't care. I'll say it. Because when I sit and I look back, and I see some of the stuff that happened, like when John Crotty took that three and they said, no, 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 Dick Bavetta. He waved it off. No, he didn't make it. That ball was this far out of his hands. Jordan takes a three and they count it. And that light went on and that ball was still resting in his hands. That's six points. Yes. It's just, and then, I don't know. I just sit and look back and I hate the fact that we weren't just playing the Bulls. We were playing the refs, and I love the refs. God, I, God bless them. They're amazing. They've worked with me. I love them to death. Ooh, but I sit and watch some of the highlights, and I'm like, I remember that. And it's, I just feel like we were just a small market team. The NBA didn't want us. There, I'm so conspiracy glad. theory for you. I'm so glad you brought it up, though, man, because we could go hours on that because I do remember that game. I'm, I'm one of those guys. I have a very specific memory, and I remember the the shot clock violations and the no yep. call violation. And people always want to talk about the push off or non push off, which is a big call to me in my opinion, but people forget about those two specific shots. There was other ones too, but it's just like, that's a six point swing in a game that was decided by a bucket. Yep. Like, yep. That's a big deal. Um, 
So I'm glad you brought that up because not many people bring it up. It didn't ever get brought up again until the last dance documentary came out on Netflix. And then, then it started being brought up again. And I was like, yeah, thank you. Finally, 20 years later, everyone's finally starting to see it. Um, so I'm glad we got to bring that up, but Hey, John, let's, I got a question for you. You had, I wrote this down on my notepad. You had talked about getting treatments, right? You were talking about how cool Sloan was by allowing you to be part of that. Like you could go in and get treatment and whatnot. That's what I wanted to ask from the beginning. And then when you were saying that, I want to talk about like the, the physical toll it takes on your body to be a mascot. Cause dude, you're flying around everywhere. You talked about repelling in. So just so everybody knows, like that's what they do. They're coming up from the top of the rafters, like coming down, you're sliding down stairs. You're doing a lot of crazy stuff. What is the physical toll? Like, how does your body feel? Or do you feel pretty good as long as you take care of it and get the treatments like you were saying? You know, you know, it all depends on your character and like what you do as a character, because you have two different types, three different types, really. You have the kind of over heavier set characters that are funny. You have your athletic characters. And then you have kind of this other character that is funny and athletic. Um, but you know, I, I was one of the few guys when I started, wanted to find a different path and that path was stunts. So it, it, it just, I, I beat my body up a little bit more than most. Um, but it did. I remember, dude, you know, I've, I've had 12 surgeries. I got, a, I literally asked for my workers comp files, you know, and, and this was, I still, this was back in 2015. 14 and literally had two banker boxes full, full of all of my claims from, I mean, cause I've like, if you can see my pinky, <laughs> Oh my God, I never break anything. I just tear stuff. And I, I was really fortunate, never broke a bone, but I've, I've just torn so many things. Um, and then with the 12 surgeries, it, it, it really did. It took a toll. And in my head, I remember sitting in the cage all the time we would laugh because I'd be like, man, you know, cause I'd go out and I would do something on stilts or, you know, I fall on a record, you know, doing a stunt and I'd go in the back and the doctor'd be in the back before I even got there checking me out. And I just remember always joking about, man, I can hardly wait till or not hardly. I can only imagine what my body's going to be like when I'm 80 and I, and I never knew it was going to happen when I was 50. <laughs> so, you know, I mean, it's like, you know, I, I, I retired and, and uh, my ankles are shot. So I have to go in and get ankle replacement. Um, but, you know, between all the surgeries and, and, and stuff like that, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm pretty like an 80 year old lady could probably outrun me right now. I'm just, <laughs> just to be straight up. So, but I, you know, I enjoyed it all. I love doing what I was doing. And I know that people have asked me, would you change anything if you could? And there's really not much I'd change. I, I enjoyed entertaining that much that I knew this was going to probably be the outcome. You know, Man, that's a sex. Your pinky, first off, dude. <laughs> like, is that that's not a broken bone? That's not a dislocated no. pinky. What is it? It it just so I I remember uh, I, I was tumbling down the stairs and they my two fingers went into a crack and just bent them back. And I remember I got up and I was clapping and I looked at them. And, I, and they were sitting straight out like that. And I just popped them back in. And I came from an old school mentality, you know, and I still remember, you know, I, I would just, you just keep going. You know, there wasn't like, oh, I jacked up my fingers and I'm done for the night. And I got to go into the doctor and get them fixed. It was like, this is my job. I and mean, that's why I only missed five games out of 25 years, because 
I went through, you know, I, I pushed through all those injuries and, and it was probably detrimental. <laughs> I should have, I should have probably, but well, it was just that old school thought, you know, that I really did. And that's what was so awesome about the jazz, you know, with Jerry and the team, you know, my management is I really did. I really felt like the sixth man. I really felt like I could make a difference in that game if I could keep the crowd in it. You know what I mean? I don't know if yeah. I was delusional, but that's how I felt. So I you always dedicated. Yeah. God dang. 12 surgeries though, man. Like here's the deal. Missing five games in 25 years. Like maybe some of these players today in, in the NBA don't, I mean, I'm going to, it's my show. I can say what I want to say. Maybe they could learn a thing or two about like, playing through some stuff. You know what I mean? This whole load management is BS. And that's part of like, you had kind of referenced some about the changing of the game now between fans and players and stuff. And I'll say this, the game has changed because yeah, they're bigger, stronger, faster athletes, but they're also weak minded in my opinion, like play through some stuff here and there. I don't know. I shouldn't say it's not my body, but if you can pop your two fingers and then just get back to it, that's a Kobe mentality, dude. You got the, the mama mentality there. Uh, and now you're pinky. Dude. I think you're like, I couldn't believe that when you showed that. Holy cow. That's wild. So what was, I guess my, my question, John would be like, in your opinion, what was uh, out of the 12 surgeries or whatever injury you, you know, had, what was the worst one for you in regards to recovery and stuff? What would you say at least? I don't know. I mean, they're all so different. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like my shoulder surgery was worst just for the sheer facts. I did it twice to the same shoulder and it, it just, the, 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 the period that it took to recover. Um, which I got a story for you on that one. <laughs> Let's hear it, dude, because I had shoulder surgery too, so I, I, I'm, yeah. I'm all for this. Share the story. No, no, no. So, like, I blew up my first shoulder or my first shoulder surgery, and I remember it took me all of six months to get better, and um, eventually I ended up getting on this players' workers' comp because I had so many claims. Um, and then I blew it out again, and I remember they asked me, they're like, well, do you want HGH for your recovery? I was like, HGH. And I was like, I didn't even know that was an option. So I said, yes. And I was taking HGH a month before and a month after. Dude, now I know why athletes get healthy so fast. It was insane. Like, I remember at four weeks, I fell and caught myself with my arm and I was throwing, you know, it was crazy. I, I healed and I was fully 100%. I went to therapy twice. It was insane. Like I, I was a hundred percent at about three months. It was like two and a half months. I healed that fast. And it was, Let, yeah. dude, I am. I, I'm so glad you shared that just so you're aware, John. So I, I tore my labrum in my left shoulder twice. Yep. I had surgery on it once. I said the same thing. I've said it on the show before. I will never do shoulder surgery again because of the, what it did to me mentally, physically and everything. Like I, that recovery was the worst. I couldn't move my arm like three weeks. And so, like, the whole post-surgery trying to get my, rota like, rotation. Then I retore it, and my anchors got ripped out in a basketball game almost two years to the date of when I had gotten my surgery. So I never I never got surgery on it again. I just have, like, done – I just try to be careful around it. But the thing is, I totally would take HGH if I, like, if I knew that was an option. Because, like, I don't care. I ain't playing sports. But, like, if it's going to help you get better, why the freak not? That's, that's great. Okay, so, all right, I just wanted to share that because people have heard me talk about my shoulder surgery before, and, like, I just – that's a terrible injury. So would you say that was um, the worst one for you is your shoulder, or were there other ones that were pretty rough for you? No, I mean, I mean that one just sucked because of the time. You know what I mean, because it is. Yes. But the, I think the worst one I had that was probably the closest 
where I could have literally died. I, I was, I created this apparatus and it looked like a swing set and it was made out of aluminum and, and it was, uh, uh, 18 feet high. And I was brought it out on the court and, uh, we set it in front of the basket and I was going to crawl up it, hang upside down. And the dunkers were going to take a ball out of my hands and, and, and we were going to use it for other stuff. I, I thought about maybe seeing if I could lock my hands in and do giants on it and stuff like that. But first time out, I went in and this is back when the blaze football was still there. And I stole a pair well, I borrowed a pair of receiver gloves. So they were really sticky. And I remember I grabbed on the sides of the bars, like on the swing set. And I, I started pulling myself up. And just as I got to the top, because we had drilled a hole through that tubing, it tore. And I remember it was like slow motion. I saw it tear and this hand, because I had the receiver gloves on, was so sticky as I spun, it literally tore the other one. So I fell and I hit the mat and I thought, you know, and I just remember my eyes closed because I was waiting. I thought these two bars were going to hit me. All of a sudden it felt like, and this is, ex I still remember thinking exactly this, who hit me in the head with a bat? And it just hit me and it cooled me a little bit. And I got up and I see everybody running over and I'm like, no, 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 I'm fine. And I bent over to put my hands on my knees and then blood just started gushing. So what had happened is when it tore, you know, on a swing set, where is my arm? So on a swing set, like if this is where your A-frame is on this side, so it tore here, tipped and speared me right in the head. And it literally scalped my, my skin off my head and bounced off my skull, thank God. So when I was sitting there in all this blood, I just remember somebody screaming to get Brian Zettler, who was the trainer, and he comes out on the floor, and me and Brian have a great relationship. And he comes rolling out, smiling, you know, talking, because I've been in there a gajillion times hurt. And I'll never forget that he walked over, he looked at me, and his face just got stone cold sober, man. And he just goes, John, you're going to go to the emergency room. I'm going to call Shauna, who's my wife, and she will meet you there. And I go, Brian, what are you talking about? He goes, John. And he just stopped me. And he goes, you're going to go to the emergency room, and I'm going to call Shauna, and she will meet you there. And they got me these towels. And I remember I happened to look on this monitor, and I could see I was just covered in blood. And I looked back, and there was just blood all over the thing and or on the mat. And um, I remember I got to the emergency room, and they took it off. And I remember the lady started, you know, they cleaned it all up and shaved, and they started stapling my head. And I remember she, before she started, I'm like, can I get some something to numb this? And she goes, it isn't going to help. <laughs> so she would staple a couple, and I'd be like, okay, stop, stop, stop. But then, you know, I think it was 14 staples in my head. And I remember going back that night and I had a bandage, fully expecting to work because it was Jerry Sloan's retirement night. And I wanted for sure to be part of that. And I remember I went back and I looked at the piece of metal and it was like, I mean, it was like you tore it. It, it was all jaggedy and I still had, and I know this is going to be gross, but like part of my head was still in it. Like the meat and the hair was still stuck in there. And it was so sharp and I got so lucky that that thing, when it hit me, if it would have hit me in the neck or in the eye or whatever, it would have seriously, it would have gone right through. But luckily it hit me and I have a hard head. Otherwise, I swear to you, I'd be maimed because that thing just speared me hard. And 
I couldn't, I could, that was one of the three of the games that I missed was because they didn't want me to put the head on because they said, if I get it infected up there, I'd be screwed. So I had to sit out three games. (laughs) Yeah, it was pretty bad. I wasn't expecting that. Like I wasn't, I was like, Expecting some, maybe I like dislocated my elbow or something, you know? Like, <laughs> no, nope. yo, all right. So, the sacrifice of a mascot, dude. If anybody wants to like say that ain't a hard job, get the freak out of here. Hey, so as I wrap up the interview, I want to make sure I ask you this too, John, because this is one that's been on my mind from the beginning. Being a mascot, there's some sense of like you've got to like you got to be private about that. Um, because that's kind of part of the whole thing. Like, who is the mascot, you know? Uh, so my question is, who was allowed to know during the time that you were actively the Utah Jazz, you know, mascot, who was allowed to know uh, who you were as a person? And like, how did you go about keeping that private? Did you ever have to like, did you ever have conversations with people about the mascot, like with them not knowing that you were the mascot? Like, I mean, I, I've always wondered that. Yeah. No, you know, seriously. And, and I got to God bless my kids, man. That they they kept it so quiet. Um, and I was really shocked at that age that they were able to keep it quiet. Um, but I never let anybody know. And I still remember, um, when I was there, 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 I bet you a quarter of the office didn't even know what I did. I mean, we kept it super quiet. It started definitely getting out as time went on. When I first started, like nobody really knew what I did. And then it slowly started getting out. But, um, I remember, you know, uh, when, when I was let go, people coming up to me going, you know, that I've known for years. And they're like, what the hell? You didn't tell us you're the mascot. And I was like, you know, cause I'd always tell them I'm just game operations. So I'm not technically lying, you know? So, but it was, it helped. I hated people knowing because I never wanted like, and, it, and it's hard because if I, if I told people or if they found out, they tended to treat me different. Does that make sense? Yeah. And I, and I just wanted them to know me and to like me and not because of the character. So I, that's why a lot of it, why I kept it so quiet. Totally. No, that's cool. I just always wonder, like I've talked to the Boise State people before. There's like five people that run that. Uh, Buster Bronco is the name of the mascot at Boise State. That's where I graduated. And um, they've talked about like how they've had conversations with like friends. Yeah, dude, whoever's Buster is an idiot. Did you see what he was doing? And they're like, yeah, what a clown, you know, what a jack wagon. So that's, I was like, Man, that'd be really hard. I'd want to like. Let people know, like, hey, you idiot, you have no idea what's going on behind the scenes here. I get, um, that, I get that a lot. You? A lot of people would sit and talk about, like, knowing who the bear was, and I'd be standing right in front of them, and I'd be like, oh, really? And I go, so who is he? And there was some football player at the U that was getting, a, he was, he was living a life, uh, but pretending he was me. And there were, a oh, no way. So, but I never said anything, you know. And it just, uh, I, I, I still one more story. I remember. During the finals, Portacol, do you remember? It, I don't know if you've been down to Salt Lake. There was a bar called Portacol. Long line. I had some mascot friends in. We're standing in line, and they were. I could see they were letting jazz players and jazz management in. And I walked up, and I said, hey, never done this before. And I just said, hey, I go, you know, I see you're letting jazz people in. I said, you know, uh, I'm with the jazz. And they're like, well, so what do you do? Do you have a credential? And I said, no, I don't. And I go, okay, listen, I go. So if I was the jazz bear, I go, would you let me in? And he goes, if you were the jazz bear, I would. He goes, but I know the jazz bear and you're not him. <laughs> I go, oh, really? <laughs> so, and we talked and he told me it was that same football player from the U. So I, I just went back. I didn't correct him. I just stood in line for a freaking hour. But hey, I got a question for you, though. So 
you know, you see these, you know, like Larry Bird and Magic Johnson, and you take Carmel, you take all these old school guys from back in the day, and you bring them up in today's league. Like, because uh, somebody asked me this, and, and I still fully believe um, that I think they would crush it. I really do. Uh, what do you think? Like, if they had to play it, you know, today's team. That's like a great question. Uh, if you're taking the greats, I, I struggle. I know I'm going to get hate for this, but I struggle with thinking that Larry Bird could hold his own in today's game. I really do. I just don't think he was fast enough. I think Carl Malone, because of the way he was a physical specimen, and, I mean, 6'9", 6'8", 6'9", with just like 5% body fat. Man, the dude was an athlete, uh, and he, I think he could physically keep up. But he had, for his position as a power forward, he couldn't shoot threes which at the time wasn't important. He was a mid-range jump shooter. Um, that'd be tough for him to last today. But I do think Carl Malone could hold his own. Magic Johnson probably could hold his own as well just because of his IQ of the game. He understands how to pass. But I struggle a little bit with it because sometimes I, I watch film back then, John, and I look at the John Stockton stuff, and I, and I see even their opponents like Randy Livingston from the, the Rockets and all the Rockets guys, and I'm like, dude, these guys could totally hold their own. Gary Payton's, all this stuff. Uh, so I think the Stars could. The Stars could. But there's a majority of the NBA back then that could not have held their own. I honestly don't think Jeff Horn a second. I love Jeff. Jeff was one of my favorite players growing up ever. Don't think he could hold his own. I really don't think. I think he'd get torched in today's game because one through five in today's game, bigger, stronger, faster, more athletic. They might not necessarily be as skilled, but they're just better athletes. And I think that's where he would get left behind. But that's just my own opinion. I know people are going to torch me. They're going to be like, Bird? He was a dog. But I'm like, yeah, dude, I just don't I don't know if he could hold it up. He was slow. <laughs> so I don't know, man. But so was Jokic. And Jokic does his thing too. So but I just I don't know. I mean, because when you think about the players back in the day in the 90s and stuff, one, and this is just me, like you, I just feel that they one were all physical and they were able to take abuse and keep going. And I don't see today's players like that. Um I mean, because you hear these guys that, you know, now have to rest at game. Yeah, you know, load management. Last time you heard a player back in the 90s taking a game off so they could rest. That didn't happen. You know, I mean, Carl Malone, you'd see all these guys going in and they'd jack up their fingers. They'd come back up. They would just tape together. And now you got guys taking a week off because they stubbed their toe. And so I think physically the older generation would crush today's today's league. Look at LeBron. And I know people are going to hate this too, but look at LeBron and the whining <laughs> it's like and then i look at it as it's it was such a different league and this is why i'm fully believing that miami lost if you watch that last game do you remember how many freaking threes they took and how many times one of their players drove towards the basket he's right underneath the basket and he'd try and dish it out so they could get a three i feel that players and teams today are so focused on getting a three-point shot Instead of what Jerry made everybody do was get a more high percentage shot. You know, you, if you're getting a high percentage shot and constantly scoring twos instead of constantly missing threes like Miami did during that, that game the other night, I mean, I don't know. I think, and it was two different levels. You'd have the older generation always driving in, going for that high percentage shot compared to today's team shooting those threes. I don't know. I, I I'm just old school. <laughs> no, I, I actually there's there's some validity to that too, and and I watched LeBron from the beginning of his career all through high school up until now. He's evolved in the sense of like he wasn't always a flopper, he wasn't always a whiner. He actually was one of the more physical guys back in the early 2000s when the game was still physical. I think he evolved with the way the refing started happening. Refing started benefiting those who were getting who were flopping and stuff, and I think he kind of just 
changed his game with the way that the game was going. But as far as like the three pointers and stuff, it's funny you mentioned that about Jerry. When I had Walter Bond on the show, he was talking about when his short stint with the Utah Jazz for a couple of years. The practices, he's like, we would do skeleton practice, no defense, and we'd be passing the ball around for like ever until we got the right shot, and then we'd shoot. And we were wondering like, why aren't we having a defense against this? Because Jerry would like literally preach the high percentage shot. Like, get the right shot. I don't care if you make or miss it, but you're going to have a higher percentage of making it if you're wide open. And so that's how they would be able to do it in the games. So it's interesting you say that. Like, yeah, everyone's looking for a three. And honestly, Miami, Jimmy Butler picked a bad game to have a bad game the other night in the closeout game of that one. Because if your star is not doing the right thing, and then I think, yeah, it's a superstar-driven league now. It's basically what it is. Back then, it's a little different situation. I mean, you had to have your stars, of course. Um it's a superstar driven league though. And the load management is different now. Like you said, everyone wants a game off. It is a different game. It's hard for me to say, man, the athletes are better now, but I don't necessarily think the skill sets better overall. It's a tough discussion, man. It is. Ah. You, you know, what's interesting though. Like, like you said, is the skill set. And so if you take John Stockton, right. And you take somebody from, you know, that like, how well do they understand the game? How, how, intricate is it and and if you i remember and not many people know this but stockton you know how come he was like the steel assist or the steel leader you know was because he would go out on the court at every arena and he would dribble the ball around the perimeters and he would find the dead spots in the floor because the floors are made up of like four bay panels not all of them sit flush so sometimes when you would dribble, it would have a different bounce when you'd hit a hollow board. And that's and he would that's why he would drive them to certain areas defensively. And when he knew that they were hitting that that one board that was the ball was going to come off slower is when he would go in for a steal. I mean, who the hell thinks of that? That's super smart. Yo, John, what's funny about that is state basketball tournament here in Idaho, high school basketball, state basketball. They play on the same, they bring out the floor at the certain arena that we play at. And when I was playing my high school, like in, in when I was a senior in high school, we played there, we were warming up and we were just dribbling the ball, getting ready to do layups. And I remember the ball just like dying on the floor. And we always made jokes about it. Cause like now we go to the games, I'm, you know, almost 20 years removed from high school. It's like, but I, every time I go and watch these games, I'm always like, there's a dead spot there. There's a dead spot there. But like, we never really think about it from a defensive perspective. We just joke about it. That's so smart. And it makes total sense that John Stockton was like, he had the IQ. I think the IQ, certain players have it in today's game. Um, there are some that do have a very high IQ of basketball. I'll give them that. Nikola Jokic is one of them. And that's yep. usually your top players in the world that have the high IQ, but the vast majority just don't think the same way. Um, and I think that's just the society as a whole. We've lost the ability to think. Um, as a society, in my opinion. So it's like, I think that has something to do with it too. But, you know, John, as we, as we wrap up the interview, man, I want to just ask you one last question. What was the biggest life lesson you took from being the Utah jazz bear? Um, I honestly, I mean, if I look back, um, I look at the bear taught me to give back to the community and to, care for others um because i remember fighting you know early in my career to try and do charity events the jazz wanted me to do three charity events and i was just like well if i just do these three events i'm never going to do appearances <laughs> i said I, so i remember this is kind of funny i remember going out and doing charity events like special olympics diabetes walks 
and the TV camera would pick me up and I'd get called in and they'd be like, Hey, you're only supposed to do these three charities, you know, blah, blah, blah. And I'd be like, okay, you know, and I'd next, I'd be caught at another event. <laughs> and finally they, they, they broke down and they let me start doing charity events. And I foregoed getting paid to go do events just so I could do charity events. Um, and I, and I did that because I really did. I felt blessed that I had a job that I love so much and um, I knew I needed to give back. Uh, and then, you know, just because of that, I also learned that, you know, <clears throat> never to take credit for what took an army to do. Like everybody's like, oh God, you know, you were this at the bear, this or this. And it was like, man, it took so many cogs in that wheel to, you know, small or big and, you know, to, to, to get that character to where he, you know, to the elevated level that he was. And I needed, you know, you, you need to appreciate the people around you. And a lot of times people don't, you know, and it was, it was simple things, uh, you know, that I learned of, of just giving even to just the people in the arena from security to uh, the custodial staff or the ushers, you know, I mean, and I, this isn't why I did it, but it was kind of a point is I remember security in the summers, I'd always bring them ice cream cones. And in the winter, I'd always bring pizzas for them, you know, just to say thank you. And because that, you know, there's always those people at businesses that never really get any thanks, you know, and I was just trying to say thank you. And I remember one, one time uh, Steve Starks, the president of the company, pulled up to the back lot. He wanted to get down and the circus was there. And security was like, no, you know, it's closed off. They have everything. And they ushered him away. And he had to go park in the far lot. And I pulled up behind him. And I just remember Linda looking at me. And she goes, you can park down there. <laughs> and it was and it was just, you know, because I took the time to be able to go and, and just say thank you. And not a lot of other people do. And, you know, like I always say this, you know, for the last thing I'll say, because I know I can't shut up because I was a mime for 25 years now. I just love talking. Um, but I always say, as I go, you know, you can always tell the character of somebody by how they treat people that can't do anything for them. And I fully 100% believe that. And I, I always, and I, a great thing was, I remember I went out to lunch with Gail Miller and I treated, and she said it, and she just goes, look, you, you know, everybody from the custodial staff to the Miller family. And I did, and I treated the custodians the same way I treated the Millers, you know, and I never varied. I wasn't, you know, like one way with this group or one way with this group. It was just like, look, I, I, you know, love you all the same and I respect you all the same. So that that's what I learned is just making sure to treat people the same. I absolutely love it, man. What great stories. What an awesome opportunity to hear from you, John. And I just want to say thank you. I want to say thanks for joining me and thanks for sharing your stories with us today. And I'm, I'm looking forward to just, you know, keeping the connection with you. I think it's really cool. And I think the people who have listened to this can learn a ton uh, from the fun stories you shared with as well, as well as the life lessons that you learned. I think it's really, really cool. So I just want to say thanks once again for joining the show, brother. Oh, dude, I cannot thank you enough for having me on. This is fun. We just got to sit and bullshit is talk sometime <laughs> <laughs> we will i i got your contact info we'll, we'll be in touch brother and for those who are listening i hope you guys enjoyed it as well and make sure you guys hit the subscribe button to the podcast leave us a review on apple Podcasts. help the show get out to more people and uh you guys know the drill we'll be coming to you next week with another interview 
Guys, thanks so much for listening to another episode of my show. Now, if you could go and do me a favor, head over to iTunes, give me five stars, and leave me a review. It would be greatly appreciated. Thanks, guys. Appreciate your support.